0: Snuff Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I'm Katrina Blowers. It is Wednesday, September 1. It is the first day of spring, my absolute favourite season of the year. On today's briefing, did Banjo Patterson whitewash the man from Snowy River?
1: This is a cultural war battle. This is Absolutely, the Australia Day debate through the prism of wild horses.
0: So this is a really fascinating story on today's briefing you won't want to miss. That's coming up in the second half. But first, let's bring in a new voice on the briefing. Antoinette Latouf is here with the headlines. Good morning and welcome, yep. Antoinette. Now, for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Oh, well, I'm, I'm a spring baby, so it's certainly my favourite season of the year. Um, yeah. I also enjoy short, not long walks on the beach. Um, I'm a journalist. General- at Network 10. I'm currently writing a book. Gosh, what else can I share? I can't do a cartwheel. Terrible at reverse parking. um, And my children (laughs) tell me I am the biggest nerd they know. Who
0: can do a cartwheel? I think you stopped being able to do cartwheels at the age of about eight and that's it.
2: I have never been able to do one and it's something that I just can't (laughs) reconcile with. But, you know, I I will deal with that with my shrink.
0: All right. (laughs) A lot to work on there. (laughs) Let's get into today's headlines.
2: There are fears the COVID nineteen crisis in Western New South Wales is spiralling out of control.
1: Again, uh, our concern is uh, Western New South Wales. Overnight, there were fifty four cases. Uh, Thirty
3: two of those cases were in Dubbo, Wellington and Bathurst. Both had five cases in Burke. Eight cases. Narromine, Mudgee, Brewarana and Parks all had a case in each of those communities.
0: So that's kind of worst case scenario for those regional towns there. That's uh, the New South Wales Deputy Premier, John Barillaro. The situation in the small town of Wilcannia in particular is being described as dire. So what they're
2: dealing with, was 73 people in that town of 720, they've tested positive for COVID-19 and that's the highest transmission rate in the state. The problem is the population is largely Indigenous and many have underlying health problems. And there have been some problems with the vaccine rollout in these regions and community leaders have warned that if this happens and if it gets into these communities, it will have devastating impacts.
0: Yeah, that's because the average life expectancy for Aboriginal people in towns like Wilcannia is 40 years less than non-Aboriginal Australians. Reports out of the area say locals are sleeping in tents in order to self-isolate. Meanwhile, let's go to Victoria, where Premier Daniel Andrews will today announce his government will ease some of those really tough COVID
3: restrictions. You either chase zero and deliver that or very low numbers, or you have lots of zeros at the end of your daily case numbers. That's where we're at. Thankfully, we're in the low number. We're at the low number end of that. And that does give us options.
2: We decided to start with the good news, but of course there is bad news. The state announced two deaths yesterday and perhaps insensitively, a lot of younger people wave off the severity of the virus, you know, by thinking and saying things like, oh, only old people in their 80s pass away and perhaps they're on their way out anyway. But
0: certainly that's not the case with these two deaths. That's right, a woman in her 40s, another in her 60s, which is still relatively young, died at home. Their deaths are the first in Victoria since last year's second wave and they take the state's toll to 822.
2: Andrews is expected to lift a ban on children's playgrounds and also increase that five kilometre travel limit to 10 kilometres.
0: Sadly, though, for business owners, retail will likely remain closed for the time being and face masks will continue to be compulsory.
2: You know, and I just don't know how poor Victorians are going to manage through this. I think about my sister. She has a beauty salon which has been closed more than it's been open in the past 18 mm. months. Um, and I, I, I just don't know how so many of those small businesses are going to recover. Meanwhile, we have more on that deal that will see Australia receive 500,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine from Singapore.
1: There are 500,000 doses extra that will happen in September, that otherwise would have had to wait for several months from now, accelerating our vaccination program at this critical time, as we work towards those 70% and 80% targets.
2: That's the PM, Scott Morrison, announcing that deal. And I just can't stress how much those doses are needed. You know, from a Sydney perspective, I have so much of my community and family in southwestern Sydney in those red zones. They want to get vaccinated, but they're still waiting on their appointments.
0: Yeah, that's what we're hearing, that frustration. All right, so this is how this deal works, is that we don't just get those extra vaccines with no strings attached. Australia will have to hand back half a million vaccines to Singapore later in the year. Australian Medical Association Vice President Dr Chris Moy says it will be a vital boost in our vaccine rollout.
1: It'd be great to be able to get more into people's arms um, in next month or so. My understanding this will be particularly focused on rural areas and through general practice.
0: So Antoinette, those figures of people who've had their first dose are up to 58.7% of Australians now and they reckon that if this pace continues the transition phase, you know when we get to Mm. that 70% vaccination rate, will happen in around late October, which I think is a tiny bit sooner than what they had initially hoped. So that um, half a million doses from Singapore is very welcome for the acceleration of that rollout.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm getting my second jab next week on my birthday. It's going to be my birthday present oh, to myself excellent. and to the community. And I'm you know very much looking forward
0: to that. The last of the US troops have left Afghanistan overnight. And now the Taliban is celebrating this as a sign that they have won the war.
2: US troops evacuated more than 123,000 people And that was in the weeks leading up to the August 31 withdrawal deadline. But as many as 5,000 US citizens and Afghans with US affiliation are still there.
0: US Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the US will continue to negotiate with the Taliban to help get those people out.
1: We will hold the Taliban to its pledge to let people freely depart Afghanistan. The Taliban is committed to let anyone with proper documents leave the country in a safe and orderly manner.
2: Meanwhile, Australians who served in Afghanistan, they're being reassured that their efforts were worth it. And and I reckon that's a pretty hard sell because after 20 years, they helped replace the Taliban with the Taliban.
1: I want all of our veterans to know just how proud Australia is of all they achieved. I've been speaking to many Afghanistan veterans over the last few weeks, and all of them are unanimous in their view that what they did made a real difference on the ground.
0: That's Veteran Affairs Minister Andrew Gee there. Veterans Affairs said last month it had contacted more than 200,000 ex-servicemen and women in the wake of the Taliban's resurgence. 41 Australians died in that 20-year conflict.
2: And Aussie sporting star Dylan Olcott, he's just one win away from a second consecutive Paralympic quad wheelchair singles gold medal. Just
0: incredible stuff. Uh, the Paralympics tennis player admits he thought he was actually going to lose to Niels Vink of the Netherlands.
3: Alcott, what a match. Where does that rank for you?
1: Oh, number one. I'm emotional actually still. Um, I was done there. I'm an old man. I'm cooked. Cramping, I'm sore. He's half my age.
0: Oh, how tough is that? But also, how excellent when you can beat someone half your age. That's got to feel amazing. Uh, that audio courtesy of Channel 7 there. Alcott will now play Dutchman Sam Schroeder in the finals later this week.
2: Now, Australia has added four medals on the day seven of the games and three in the pool and one on the track. Look, and I remain a terrible Australian, unworthy of my passport and citizenship. I have not watched the Olympics or Paralympics. Sorry, Katrina. I know that you are a massive fan.
0: (laughs) I am. You know, it's just been the bright spot of news that I've needed to counterbalance all the other crap that's been going on in the world. But look, Antoinette, I appreciate your honesty. It has been lovely having you with us and you'll be joining us back again for the briefing tomorrow.
2: Looking forward to it.
0: All right, coming up has Banjo Patterson, whitewashed one of the most iconic Australian stories ever told.
1: There was movement at the station. The word had passed around that the colt from old regret had got away and joined the wild bush horses. He was worth a thousand pounds. All the cracks had gathered to the fray.
3: If you grew up in Australia in the 80s and 90s, chances are you had to study the movie The Man from Snowy River, Wyatt School, a highly romanticised tale of Australia's wild brumbies And, of course, a love story involving a handsome stockman. Because there always has to be a
0: love story, (laughs) right? Uh, But in real life, the debate over what to do about Australia's wild brumbies has been described as a battle for the soul of Australia. So Australia has the largest wild horse population in the world. It's really tough to get a read on numbers, but they're estimated in the range
3: of half a million. In the outback, they are regularly culled by helicopter and nobody bats an eyelid. The battle between those who are opposed to the horses being culled and those who say they're ruining the pristine Alpine environment they call home. So,
0: Walkley award-winning journalist Anthony Shaw sniffed out a good story here and he's written a new book all about this called The Brumby Wars where he paints the
3: picture of a culture war. And unearths new evidence that reignites old claims that The man from Snowy River is part of a whitewashed Australian history, as in the stockman from Banjo Patterson's poem was actually an Indigenous man.
1: He sent the Flintstones flying, but the pony kept his feet. He cleared the fallen timber in his stride, and the man from Snowy River never shifted in his seat. It was grand to see that mountain horseman ride.
0: Gosh, if this is true, it's going to turn the whole story on its head, right? Joining us now is Anthony Sharwood on the briefing from his backyard where you can hear him in the wilds
3: with lots of birds. (laughs) Anthony, (laughs) thanks for joining us. At its heart, this battle is about ecological concerns versus a cultural mythology of the Brumbies and the mountains. So, what conclusions did you reach in terms of the Brumbies' place in our history and also their future?
1: I think the Brumbies need to stay in tiny numbers. This is a cultural war battle. This is absolutely the Australia Day debate through the prism of wild horses. People want the horses to remain, even though they are savaging and really badly damaging Kosciuszko National Park, the Victorian High Country, and other areas like the Barmer Forest, Australia's largest river red gum forest on the Murray, where there's a big pack of Brumbies as well. There's no doubt that these animals are beautiful, but that they hurt the environment. And this fight is about those environmental concerns, as you said, but it's about culture as well. Not just the culture, not just wild horses, you know, and there's a million songs about wild horses. Everybody loves wild horses. Everyone loves the idea of the mane streaming in the wind and and the horse galloping and and so on. But the horses symbolise post-colonial Australia. We must keep some, but we must keep them in small numbers. And we've got to get there quicker because the Australian high country is more fragile or as fragile as the Great Barrier Reef. Keep a few brumbies but not in the vast herds they're in now.
0: Could you paint a picture for us of where it is looking really grim in in those parts of the world? So what is the worst of the damage that's occurred so far? Why, Why should we care about this?
1: Basically, the big damage they do is to the waterways and to the ground cover. All the little critters that up in Kosciuszko need this sort of thatchy grass of ground cover to hide from predators. That's all gone. It's all mown like a sort of bowling green. But the main damage is to the creeks and rivers. Alpine streams should run clear. They should have overhanging arches of bushes. They should have this miracle moss called sphagnum. And sphagnum stores the water. What it does, if it doesn't rain all summer in the Alps, all the snow melts and all the spring rains will be stored in the sphagnum moss and it releases slowly over time. It's this unbelievably complex and beautiful and lovely ecosystem. And when you go up to these plains of northern Quasi, it's just footy fields and mud paddocks and all the sphagnum's gone and all the little gentle creeks have been turned into muddy, wide erosion ditches. Someone said to me on, on my travels in the research for the Brumby Wars that, you know, for farmer, had their paddock in this sort of state, they'd be the laughing stock of the region.
3: It's not just the damage they do to the environment, of course. The Brumbies themselves suffer. It's estimated that between 20 and 30% can be malnourished and injured. So when you talk about management, what's the population look like at the moment? And what do you think would be a level that would be satisfactory in terms of both environmental outcomes and for the horses themselves?
1: There were 19,000 in Kosie. Now they reckon there's 14,000 estimated. Alps wide, so Victorian Alps, Cozzy, Osco, Snowy Mountains, all of the high country in those three, two states. Well, there's three states with high country, ACT, but they have no brumbies. They have a zero tolerance policy. Uh, but in New South Wales and Victoria, there's probably something like 15 to 20,000. I reckon the number that we need is one or 2,000 at best. I don't mind giving away the <laughs> the ending of the book because... I've basically said, you know, in Eileen Mitchell's famous children's series of books, the Silver Brumby series, they're always in small herds, small mobs of eight or ten, and they're a flash through the trees. And then there's a lot of native wildlife and not much in between. And then there's another mob flashing through the trees in the distance. And this is how they should be. They should be a hint. They should be a flash through the trees, not this vast mob standing there in a herd in the middle of a plain, completely churning up the landscape into mud.
0: I want to talk to you now about the investigative journalism you did on one of the most iconic pieces of literature, Banjo Patterson's Man from Snowy River, and how potentially his version of events could be a whitewashing of history.
1: There's a guy called Richard Swain who runs trips down the snowy on inflatable boats and He's an Indigenous man. He knows everything about the country down there. And, look, one thing led to another, but this was an area of the mountains, sort of the the fringe of the mountains, through which the Snowy River flows. It's called the Bayadbo Wilderness. And when I started rereading the Man from Snowy River poem, I realised that the poem had to happen in Bayadbo. There's a famous line in in the Man from Snowy River poem that says pine-clad ridges. It talks of pine-clad ridges, and Bayadbo is a dry area with native cypress pine. There is nowhere else in the entire Australian Alps with pines. And down by Kosciuszko, where the pine-clad ridges raise their torn and rugged battlements on high, where the air is clear as crystal and the white stars fairly blaze at midnight in the cold and frosty sky. And there are other little pointers, because there's snow gums, right? We all know about the famous, magnificent snow gum, but there's this tiny little dry corner where every hill is covered in native cypress pines. And there are other little bits of Bayadbo that are clearly, in my mind, where Banjo has written The Man from Snowy River. It's also the steepest ground of the mountains, and that's where the daring ride happens down the steep slope. Well, it just so happens that every single stockman in that area is known to have been Indigenous or had... Mm-hmm. at least partly Indigenous blood. So I'm saying quite simply that in many parts of the mountains, actually, stockmen were Aboriginal. But in this part of the mountains, all stockmen were Aboriginal. This is known. And the poem seems to suggest extremely strongly that it can only have happened in that part of the mountains. So it seems likely to me that Banjo painted an Aboriginal Stockman white.
3: And is this something that's been well known in Indigenous communities for a long time? And if so, why is it only really bubbling to the surface now? Why has nobody listened?
1: Indigenous people have said, white people only listen when white people tell stories. So that's sort of a damnation on all of us. It's a damnation on me, on you. If an Indigenous person says, oh, by the way, the man from Snow River had to be black. And and that's been said before, no one really perks up. But when a white author makes the claim to a predominantly white readership, it seems like people take it seriously. So it's a call to all of us to listen a bit more closely to our Indigenous fellow citizens when they make some of these cultural claims. I bet there's other sort of interesting ones out there too.
3: And you said you expected a little bit of backlash. Why do you think so? Is that because it's such an important part of our literary history, and 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 something that a lot of people would have studied at school, and that I guess changing that narrative will have an impact. So I wanted to ask, what are you expecting, and what's your plans to, I guess, counter any of that?
1: I don't really have plans. If this blows up, this blows up. But it's sort of part of the narrative of this book, right? Because. We have a lot of mythology in our society. We live on mythology a lot more than we, we all realise, I think. And actually, that's what the Brumby Wars is all about. And if a culture war starts over this one particular claim in the book, so be it, because the whole book is a book about the culture wars. And I've walked with the ecologists and I've walked with the advocates and the activists and the, the parkies and the former parkies. and the, You know, I, I've been through the complete... <laughs> spectrum of Australians who are passionate about this issue and you know it used to be the first principle of journalism you know both sides tell a story through both sides but I think especially in in books these days if you look at them there's not that many examples of people going the full distance and, and absolutely listening and This is really not a book about Brumbies. It's about how the hell are we going to get back together in this polarised world that we live in and start having dialogues and start coming to actual conclusions and getting things done on important issues. And so, look, I don't stand here as the guy with the blueprint for the future of humanity on how to discuss difficult things, but I've tried. I've actually tried to come together and say, look, let's listen, I don't like this argument, you don't like that argument, that person doesn't like your argument, but let's all listen and let's find whatever tiny postage stamp sized ground of common ground we can find and do something from there. That
0: was Anthony Sharwood, who has just written a book called The Brumby Wars, which is out now. Annika, I grew up in Canberra, so I'm quite familiar with that part of the world around Kosciuszko National Park. It is really beautiful. And I loved how vividly he described that landscape. And also, I guess I wasn't
3: really aware about the damage that those brumbies are doing there. Yeah, it's an incredible part of the world, isn't it? I've been lucky enough to spend a fair bit of time in the high country in Australia and it is if you haven't been there i know we're all in lockdowns and can't travel interstate but once the borders open try and get yourself to these amazing parts of australia but as you say hugely contentious issue obviously for some Mm -hmm. people this is really you know part of our, our history and culture but there's no denying the damage that is being done to both the environment and also the brumbies themselves
0: and if, um, depending on how this book lands, we might see a remake of the movie with a more accurate and contemporary version of history, um, perhaps an Indigenous lead actor. So watch this space. And coming up on tomorrow's episode briefing, an incredible interview with Lieutenant General John Fruin. Now, this is the guy who is responsible for Australia's COVID vaccine rollout. Listener.